I'm raising the veil. And so I invite you in this moment to ground yourself. Feel your energy through your body, bringing it all in. In your mind's eye, just see that energetic vibration field just come in and bless you in this moment. No scattering, no discord or distress. All is well. All is well. All is well. The divine presence you are is assured. It's the truth of your being. At that soul level. With the next beautiful breath, just relax into this moment. Creating that space for your soul, our souls, to be present with us. That place where we live deeply. Nothing can harm us. Nothing can discount us in this moment. Nothing can support the idea that we've done something wrong. It is in the the perceived errors that we make in this life where so much of the, the blessings and the learning are made available for us. And so I recognize in this moment on behalf of each person here, but speaking in the I am, in the form of an affirmative prayer, first and foremost, I recognize this vibrational field of love, beauty, support, and encouragement. And as I relax in this moment, I am more fully available and open to it. So it is not about doing anything, it is about allowing and revealing. Because what I know as well is that not only is that presence a dynamic, active vibration, but it's who and what I am, who and what you are. And so that one life is my life. And so I affirm and know in this moment that there are things that that are awakened within me this day out of love and inspiration, out of deep caring and nurturing and caring for my soul, your soul, our souls, that provide the, the momentum, the inspiration, the energy, calling forth the resources in everything that it's required for the fulfillment of that, that new idea, that new possibility. But also to bless in the nature, nurturing of the soul, blessing this rich and powerful and deep moment. Life is not always about acquisition and doing and pushing out, but simply appreciating the fullness of life, the beautiful song sung this day, the beautiful words shared, the vibration of the Most High, the prayer work and the consciousness and the presence of the infinite within our community here and now, this sacred space. So I know that this, everything is prepared for us as we prepare ourselves for everything. For this I give thanks, knowing everything is in divine right order, which is no, what no longer serves us is bubbled up so we can look at it and, and put it down perhaps to make room for something more fully orbed, something more balanced and healthy and whole, something more fruitful and productive and creative. For this I give thanks, releasing these words in, in great gratitude and appreciation and standing in that gratitude like never before I give thanks and invite you to say with me. And so it is. All right. Beautiful. What beautiful songs that lined up so well. I'm glad you guys finally got here. Holy cow, Thomas and Baranya. We, were gonna, we started without you, but here you are. Beautiful to see you. Love you. You know, I would only do that if I truly loved you.
And I knew that you wouldn't get up and leave on me if I did that, so thank you. So, as I said, you know, someone, as Reverend Catherine and I said, oh, it's, it's raining, I said, yeah, but it's not snowing, so. <laughs> yeah, woohoo is right. I had a wild dream last night. I dreamt that I was playing in a rock band. I was a member of a rock band, and my instrument was an electric drill and a hole saw. And the guy that ran the band said, oh, I need more hole saw from you. And I'm like, hmm, like Christopher Walken, and, you know, I need more cowbell. That, that video, if you've ever seen it. Well, my, my instrument was, and it was at, I think it was at the Folk Fest. I was on the big stage. You know, <laughs> ring. And then someone told me what that meant. And I, on the way out, they said, well, the hole saw represents holiness. I'm like, yeah, it does. It's beautiful. And, and so you were making space for newness. I'm like, yeah, that's it. I'm going with that. Perfect. So anyway. If I was in a boat with a hole saw, drilling a hole in the bottom of it, that would be another story, wouldn't it? But anyway, so we're talking about planting seeds of growth this month and identifying the language of the soul. Wasn't that, you know, that that survey that Reverend Catherine read to you about the things that you like here, it took me like 15 minutes to fill that thing out. It was just incredible. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, 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 yeah. All right. So there's a, a, a number of, of one, you know, we, we, there's such a richness of information and, and people that have gone before us. We're so blessed to live at this time. You know, I can, you can go on the internet and find anything and, and find questions. And then you can go on the internet and find things like that people disagree. I mean, and that's the beauty of it. You know, it's just take, Ernest Holmes says, take what you can use and leave the rest behind. Thank you, Ernest. Oh, you know, trying to make sense of so much of it when there's two contrasting opinions. But in this wonderful work, I'm going to use a bit of uh, Thomas More's beautiful uh, bestseller, Care of the Soul. Um, and by the way, I feel new today, so I grabbed a red cup. I was so inspired by the red cup. I said, I'm new today. I was telling Dell in the back, you know, I got a red cup today. Because I am new, and you're new. And I'll see how many people greet me with the red cup. But anyway, in this wonderful book, um, to start out with, he talks about a beautiful quote by John Keats, I am certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections. The holiness of the heart's affections. Isn't that beautiful that when the heart is inspired to love, that we're called to something that, that, that inspires us or, or brings joy to our life or fulfillment, even if, it's a, even if it's something that's painful at times. But we just know that we have to move through it. But the, 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 the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. Because we're making stuff up anyway. Our consciousness, what we know about the metaphysical teaching is that what, that which we dwell upon, we brought it, bring into our experience more and more and more. That which we appreciate, appreciates. So if pain and suffering is all we know, we will have, be on the continuum of pain and suffering until we break that pattern. That's the good news and the bad news. For many people, they feel trapped in the suffering, and sometimes it's just their, it's their journey to walk. But when we can stand in an awareness and a, and a compassion and an empathy to understand that at some point this will change and shift, it's such a beautiful gift. And that's, that's a challenge sometimes because when we see the, those that we love suffering, we want, it, we want people not to suffer for the most part. And so Thomas More's book, the, I'm going to flesh a bit of that out to begin with, and then I'm going to move on to a couple of other uh, resources that I think tie in beautifully with this. And I'm so uh, delighted with the music today around Raising the Veil and, and the songs around the soul. So we, we know body, mind, spirit. 
And we hear this body, mind, spirit. There's expos, the body, mind, spirit. I've seen t-shirts, body, mind, spirit. But where's the soul? Where's the soul? So I Googled the soul. I said soul and image on uh, the internet, and that's the picture I got. So, you know, it's the idea that it's everywhere, but nowhere in particular. The soul, as Thomas More says, is that is the, is the part of us that's very, very deep. Very deep. And so I want to sh- share with you some ideas because I think it's quite beautiful. In, in religious science and our teaching with affirmative prayer, what we do is we, so we start out with the recognition of the one life and, and proclaim our oneness with that to heal, to close the separation. We're never separate from spirit, but many times we're so distracted in our own mentality that it feels like we're lost or separate. When in fact, all is well. All is well. All of us are right where we should be. All is well. And so Thomas More said that he's a, so he has been a monk. He, he started out trying to be a Catholic priest, decided that wasn't for him. He became a monk for a while. He's a musician. He's a university professor at one point in time and, and also a psychotherapist. So much of the work in the care of the soul was inspired by his work with different clients as a psychotherapist. But he says that the number one complaints that therapists receive in doing the research, and this book was written a number of years ago. Um, so if, are the, the symptoms will look like complaints. There's Thomas More, there he is. Complaints, emptiness, meaninglessness, vague depression, disillusionment about marriage, family, and relationships, a loss of values, a yearning for personal fulfillment, and a hunger for spirituality. And in that, he says, they all reflect the loss of the soul and what the soul craves. So isn't that interesting? Complaints, emptiness, meaninglessness, vague depression, disillusionment about marriage, family, and relationships, a loss of values, the yearning for personal fulfillment, a hunger for spirituality. He says that somehow we have to understand that we cannot solve our emotional problems until we grasp the mystery that's honoring the divine. Honoring the divine and the departed, our ancestors. Because there's a lineage there, there's an energetic lineage there as well. It's not random in terms of who we incarnate and who parents us and who we parent. The divine and the departed is part of the basic care that as human beings we have to bring to life. The soul, the ancients from antiquity, they really understood and, and nurtured this relationship with soul. And he said that we've lost a lot of it in our contemporary lives. So the soulfulness, as he describes, and I'll share more of the ideas and the insights. And the Roman writer, Apollicius, said, everyone should know that you cannot live in any other way than by cultivating the soul. The cultivation of soul. And the, the reason we don't talk about it a lot, or there's not as much research, because spirit, mind, body, you know, there's so much around the human potential movement that, that can be put down, and it's the steps and all that stuff. And all that stuff's good. But when we don't, when we don't engage the soul, and, we, and we're not in high relationship with the soul, there's something missing. And so once again, the symptoms, there's an emptiness about it. What, you know, I got what I'm looking for, I got what I was after, but there's, it seems hollow or empty. Or all of a sudden we're in a marriage, or we're in a relationship, or we're in family, and there's something missing. And so it's very interesting how to have that and understand it, not as a way of punishing ourselves, but realizing, okay, there's a soulfulness missing in this. Soul work is not adjusting to the norms of society, but rather the goal is a richly elaborate life. 
Anybody interested in a richly elaborate life? Okay, the bustles will be out front after the service and we'll head that direction. A richly elaborate life connected to society and nature and woven into the culture of family, nature, and the globe. You know, we are teaching of oneness. We are teaching that God is everywhere present, that there is no private good. We look out in the world, I mean, it cracks you open, and look what's happened with these, these, this young family that was the, the, the young boys that drowned from Syria, all that, that's triggered something and has ignited an awareness, those little angels of God's presence that have triggered something for us, and, and there'll, be, there'll be some dominoes that fall as a result of that. We can cultivate, tend, enjoy, and participate in the things of the soul, but we cannot outwit it or manage it or shape it to the designs of a willful ego. So that egoic mind, that egoic nature, that personality that we all have and is so wonderful and, and rich, you know, I think that when we, when we discount the soul, there are things that happen in life that bring us back into, uh, that force us to look at it. I think I'm looking at, you know, I'm at a point in my life where a lot of the people that I love are, are suffering with uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, I'm closer to that now than ever before. And, and I'm, I'm aware that we don't understand. I think when we delay some of that soulful work, there's a period of time when our awareness, our conscious awareness sort of diminishes and there's something happening at a deep level. I, I just think, and, and I, you know, I could be crazy, but part of what I'm, I'm looking at is I know that life has purpose. I know that, it, that, that there's something alive there and I think that at a deep level there's some work going on. And so I realized my theory is, well, why don't I do that work while I'm still conscious? rather than having to go into an unconscious state to do some of that work. I think, you know, and I'm open to suggestions, but I think that that's part of that, that putting down so that there's some really impactful understandings and experiences that go on for the soul. I just don't think it's random. I don't think it's simply cultural or, or based on, you know, the conditions of the environment that we live in. I think there's something at a deep level that's happening and only can happen when we, when we nurture it. He says that the act of entering into the mystery of the soul without sentimentality or pessimism encourages life to blossom forth according to its own designs and with it its own unpredictable beauty. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't take responsibility. It doesn't mean that we don't set an intention or set a, something we long to experience. But it's also to understand as we open to that and we step through that threshold, there are surprises and wonders along the way that we could not even expect. There will be things that will be there for us because life we either decide, as Einstein said, that life is for us or not. And I think I'm speaking to a room full of people that actually believe life is for us. So it's, it's a difference, oh, let me finish this one thought. So care of the soul is not solving the puzzle of life. The soul work is not about solving the puzzle. Quite the opposite, it is an appreciation of the paradoxical mysteries that blend light and darkness into the grandeur of what human life can be. Love, love is denied. Health, health is taken away. Career and job, career and job change and shift. All those things, that's part of life. It's the light and the darkness. And to understand that with a dexterity and a sense of, so when we're in, when we're in deep and, and powerful and grounded relationship with our soul, with our divine nature, when those things happen, it's a different experience. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's in, not inconvenient. But there's also a, a sense of grace about it. To understand, you know, the tide goes out at times. The tide does not always come in. And so it's having that depth of understanding. It is, it is the care of the soul, not the cure of conditions. 
The care of the soul, not the cure of conditions. So that we can nurture ourselves through all of it. The joy and the, and the disappointment. The emphasis is not on solving problems. Its goal is not to make life problem-free, problem but to give ordinary life the depth and value that comes with soulfulness. Soul is not a thing, but a quality of experiencing life in ourselves. It has to do with the depth, the value, the relatedness, the heart, and personal substance. Do you know people, anybody know anybody in your life that's very soulful? That when you know, when you meet them, there's, thank you. That, the, that there's a connection there that's different than just an ordinary uh, cordiality of life. We've had those experiences. You know, I, when I was doing this, I was looking for videos, so I found this, the uh, Blues Brothers uh, singing Soul Man on Saturday Night Live, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and it's, a, it's great fun, but it, uh, it didn't quite fit, but I thought, there they are. You know, I'm a soul man, you know, and they're dancing around and having a great time, but there's that, that soulfulness about life, or soul food. Anybody ever had soul food? Like in Canada, soul food is like usually Ukrainian, isn't it? Like, is a pierogi soul food? Or poutine? I have a confession to make. I have never had poutine. Now, don't be bringing poutine in here next week. <laughs> Just, yeah, but, but anyway, you know, I mean... It's like, you know, someone once said to me, you know, I come from a very Irish background, and, and they said that the, the Irish gourmet cooking is a bag of potatoes and a six-pack of beer. So I, you know, I... And the Irish certainly don't make poutine. So soul is not a thing, but a quality of experiencing life in ourselves. It has to do with depth, value, relatedness, heart, and personal substance. When we say something or someone has soul, we know what we mean. Just, I mean, see, all nodding. You know what's soulful. He's like, oh my gosh, it was such a soulful song. The music today has got this soulful quality. And, you know, when we're touched and moved at that deep level, we connect with it. You know, as an actor, years and years of acting, and, and what the teachers used to always say to us is when the, your audience can identify with what you're experiencing, which is soulfulness, all of a sudden it becomes real. That's why some people are not good actors. Because they're not in touch with their souls, and, they, and it, so they can't embody it, and they can't portray it in a way that you can identify with it. It's, it's nonverbal communication for the most part. You know, they're wonderful actors, and a lot of them were troubled in their own lives. You know, Marlon Brando, he was a mess. It's an absolute mess in terms of his, his personal life. But, but that was what it made so interesting to watch him, because he was so unpredictable. God bless him, you know? And... You know, he, so many of the great artists. I don't want to pick on Brando, I, but, you know, as a young actor, I, I admired him. I thought, man, this guy has such courage, such courage. So he talks about in this, in his Thomas More in Care of the Soul, talks about a woman that came to him. And she was feeling very, very upset because she felt she was dependent and needy and disempowered. Has anybody here ever known anybody that, that has been dependent and needy? Okay, two people over here. Talk to you guys then. But so she came to him and, and she was really upset because she felt like counting on people was bad. And it, it disempowered her, which is a very interesting perspective to have. So he said, he, he asked her this, he said, don't you want to be attached to people? Don't you want to be attached to people? Don't you want to learn from them? Don't you want to get close? Don't you want to rely on friendships to get advice from people, from someone that you respect? Don't you want to be part of a community where people need each other? where they find intimacy with someone that is so delicious that you can't live without it. I mean, I think this is a room full of people that pretty much have friends that 
that you long to see and spend time with that, that add value to your life. And so from that perspective of, of I'm broken, and so because I'm broken, I'm dependent on people, and, and being dependent on people reinforces this conclusion that I've established that I'm broken, when in fact, to have a healthy perspective and realize we're in relationship, and that's not a bad thing. So she, she asked when he gave that description, don't you want to be connected with people, on and on and on, and she said, well, is that dependence? And he says, well, it sounds like it to me. And like everything else, you can't have it without its shadows, without its inferiority, submission and loss of control. There's a vulnerability involved with it. But that's the fullness of it. That's the risk we take of loving one another. But, you know, as we grow, as we mature, as we deepen, as we really start to get clear about who we are, whose we are, and what's important to us, our friends change. Have you noticed that? You may have some friends you started out with that are lovely, lovely, wonderful people, but you don't hang out with them anymore because all of a sudden something has shifted and changed. <clears throat> or maybe they told you to get lost, whatever. I shared her at the earlier service. I got kicked out of the altar boys when I was in grade five. It wasn't my fault. It was my dad's fault. But it broke my mom's heart. But I, I, I look back now. I look back 50 years. I realize, wow, that was preparing me for what I'm doing now. There was something alive in me and something alive in him, and we just couldn't get our schedules right. We kept showing up at the wrong time for the wrong mass. Finally, the priest said, you can't be on the schedule anymore. I said, no. My dad said, well, that's a good thing. We don't have to get up at five in the morning anymore to do this. I'm like, well, but I got to go home and tell mom I got kicked out of the altar boys. I'm going to call her right after service and explain it to her now, what a gift it was. Well, he, she says, is that dependent? It sounds like it to me, but everything else. But th those, those things, there's a loss of control in that. So observing what the soul is doing and hearing what it is saying is a way of going with the symptoms. Not trying to fix it, not trying to cure it, but to just be with the symptoms. Go, wow, look at this. James Hillman, who is a wonderful researcher, psychologist that influenced Thomas More, said the way through the world is more difficult to find than the way beyond it. So it's more difficult to be in our lives and confront the things that come at us rather than deflect it or pray over it or deny it or, or move into addictions that don't serve us but help us numb the pain. The way through the world is more difficult to find than the way beyond it. So to be in the world. Jesus said it in other ways. He said, be in the world but not of the world. Brilliant man, brilliant teacher, brilliant wisdom. So being follows imagination, is what Thomas More says. Being follows imagination. Whatever we can imagine, our beingness will follow. What can you imagine for yourself? What is possible? What is the ideal? We talked about that last month, the one thing. What's the one-time one thing and that we can work with over the next five years, over the next year, over the next uh, month, over the next week, over the next day? Right now, what can we do in support of that? Being follows imagination to observe something. Observing Christmas. Do you, do, you know, many people here observe Christmas. When we observe something, we give our love to it, our attention to it. And then there's a richness that we create our own rituals, our own experience of it. Rather than not what's imposed upon us or what it should be, but our own experience of it. So soul, soul is found in our homes. To have a beautiful home that you go and you sit. Do you all have a special place you like to sit at home? To 
That's where we find that we connect with our soul. To have a prayer chair, to have something sacred or some space you go to where, you know, there's a chair or a place you sit. When you sit down, it triggers within you, ah, whew, everything's okay. I made it home again. Here I am. You know, the place where you read, the place where you study, where you have a sacred place. It's found in friends. Soul, that soulfulness is found in friends, people that we're close to that we can start. I have friends in ministry that we end our conversation, don't talk for six months, and then we talk in six months, we start the conversation up again. And it's not about, how come you didn't call me? Do you, do you not love me? How come I haven't heard from you? Boy, that's a lot of fun to, to wade through, you know, every time you call somebody, isn't it? But rather, what's, tell me about that. Remember when you said this, inspired this in me. Tell me more about that. That's a lovely, lovely thing. There's a soulfulness there because there's a trust. It's a deep part of who we are. The soul of a person decides who we are. And when we're not living from that soulfulness in, in, in concert with our minds and bodies and spirit, we're missing something. There's cylinders that aren't cranking. Tragedy, conflict, and trouble. We lose a job, we get sick. It causes people to, to look at their life and say, who am I in this? What happened? How come this fell apart? This is what I was talking about. Without losses, we stop taking... When, without the losses and those, those stopping us in our tracks, there's a tendency to take life for granted. And then we're, but to stretch into it and to be able to stand in it. Today tells a story about the story of a minister a, a, you know, in a faith tradition. And he was working with him in therapy. And the minister said, you know, if my family knew what I was thinking, the thoughts I was thinking after all these years of being in ministry, they would disown me. I can't share it because of the role he played. But it was an interesting observation of sometimes you don't want to rock the boat and, and say, you know, I have an idea. This could all be wrong. I remember visiting with Candace Beckett. She was the president of Religious Science International at the time that we were uh, two, two different groups, uh, since now Centers for Spiritual Living. And she had gone through a tremendous amount of physical suffering. Tremendous amount, and, and died, almost died on a, a couple of occasions with a lot of the things that came into her life. And she, we were in Vancouver a few years ago, and she used to be my sponsor, and we sat and chatted for a little bit. And she said, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe everything we teach. And so I think that's healthy. I mean, we don't have the market cornered on wisdom and what wants to happen, but I think we do our best. And I think as we grow and deepen in our own spiritual nature, those insights and awarenesses. So I think what Candace was saying to me is, I'm going through a growth spurt of questioning. And I want to teach, we all want to be, I think we all want to be in integrity. We want to speak from our hearts. And as we deepen and grow, so I thought it was just such a, a wonderful, authentic sharing. And what a beautiful model for someone that has for so long, you know, held the status quo of, of possibility. You know, part of the beautiful thing of uh, how I'm wired, I took a survey online a couple weeks ago called Strength Finders, Tom Rath's Strength Finders. And I'm an, number one, I'm an input guy. I love input. I love learning. And number two, I'm a learner. So it's input and learning and input and learning. I love that because it's always the greater yet to be. It's just like, wow, this is the perfect job for a guy like me. And it doesn't mean that I don't hold things sacred, that I'm floating from one thing to another. But for me, it's an ever-deepening examination of my own relationship with spirit. And what does that mean? So it's lovely. It's just lovely. So he says, how to open to mystery. You don't have to have a, as many answers as you thought you did. You don't have to have all the answers. 
There are things about human life that we will never understand, but we can be okay in the unknowing. To learn to take life as it is presented to us. Realize, I don't know. When, when Dr. Candace said to me, I don't know. I was so certain for a long time, and now I don't know. And what I think it was was the soulfulness to realize that that discord and that distress came into her life as physical challenges to deepen her and her soul's connection. Because I know she was conscious enough to have that experience. And she's still doing great, still doing ministry. He suggests we look at the lives of people you admire. They have been faithful to their vision. We can follow that. You can be faithful to your vision. What is the greater yet to be? People have gone before us. He says, never be satisfied with the pat answers. Those answers may not be your answers. So I want to share with you the next picture. There's a guy most of us know, Wayne Dyer. Just died last Saturday, eight days ago. Wayne Dyer uh, was one of the guys that I admire. I still admire him. He's an amazing guy. When I first got into ministry, I used to listen to his cassette tapes driving to and from my church while I was still working a full-time uh, other job. And because I needed to be filled up with these ideas and I admired him and I loved his stuff and he had a lot of things that were just so near and dear. And I know many of you have read, read his books. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about him in, in tribute to him today. He was, uh, when he was a, um, a young man, and I, I've told you about his birth story and, and his finding his birth father and all that. And if you weren't here, it's a, it's a wonderful story. But I'll, we, can, we can, maybe next week I can bounce back and tell that story. But he was, um, he was a high school counselor in Detroit. And then he worked and he got his credentialing and he got his graduate degree. And he moved to St. John's University in Albany, New York. And he worked at the university and he was just about tenured, which is a great thing. Tenure, of course, you know, you're, you're in. They can never fire you, really. And you have a, an assured income and a status and all this stuff. So he had all that going for him. But while he was doing all this, he began speaking. He began taking his ideas out in the world and doing public speaking. And he had a guy who was with him and said, you know, Wayne, you need to write a book. And he says, oh, you know, that's a good idea. And he loved to write. He was a prolific writer is the way he expressed himself. And so Wayne wrote The Erroneous Zones. Anybody ever heard of The Erroneous Zones? But that was his first book. And so he wrote this book and he went, he had this publisher and he said, okay, how many, how many are we going to publish? And the guy said, 3,500. He said, well, okay, and what do we do after 3,500 sell? He said, calm down there, Tiger, calm down. 3,500 is a lot of books. He says, well, but what, what's going to happen after we sell 3,500? He said, well, let's just see. So he went back to Albany where he was living, and he got a, he got a number, which, which was the designation that he was now a bookstore, which was his garage. And so he called the, the, the publisher and ordered 3,350 uh, 3, of his own book and paid for him and had him shipped to his home. And so he went back a week later to Lou, the publisher, and said, how's the book doing? And he said, oh, calm down. It's only been out a week. Relax. 3,500 copies out there. He says, well, just look, will you? Okay, so look, Lou pulls up the report, and he goes, oh, my God, that book is going crazy. They're all sold. <laughs> he goes, yeah, what do we do now? He says, well, we're going to publish again, second publishing. We'll do 1,500. He says, great. So Wayne Dyer goes home, calls again, orders 1,500 more of his own book. And he said the books at that time sold for $7 a book, which was a lot of money then. And I don't know what he was paying for them, probably five bucks a book. But all of a sudden, he's got 5,000 books in his garage. But he, he was so convinced of his vision. He was so committed to what he had to offer. 
and his wife was on board with him, and he knew that this was what was his calling. Now, he could have stayed put at St. John's University, had his tenure, had everything before him that would have felt good and right, but he just knew his soul called him to something different. Isn't this fascinating? I mean, we all think, well, geez, he published a book, and it took off, and, you know, and all the serendipitous stuff around that. No, no, he was buying his own books. So then he said to his wife, we've got to get rid of these books. What are we going to do? So he, got, he, he packed as many books as he could into his car, and he would identify. So he would call. He started out in Albany, I think is the first one where he lived, and he would call with all these uh, fake voices, he and his wife. And they would call the bookstore and say, uh, Hello, do you have Wayne Dyer's uh, book, uh, The Eronian's Zones? They would do every accent they could. They would call a couple times a day. And then he would go over and say, You know, I'm, I'm Dr. Wayne Dyer, and I've got a new book, The Eronian's Zones, and could I leave 25 of them here with you? And if you don't sell them, just ship them back to me. I'll pay the shipping. You know, no cost to you, but I just want to see if you can. He goes, yeah, we've had 10 calls for your book already. Sure. You know, leave us 50. And then what he would do is he would call these, these communities that he could drive to. And he would call their morning show, their radio shows, their TV shows, and say, hey, I'm Dr. Wayne Dyer. I've got this new book, The Erroneous Zones. In the meantime, they would find the bookstores in that area. And he and his wife would go through all the accents and inquire about the book. So he would roll into town in his station wagon, and he would go to the bookstore and say, hey, I'm Dr. Wayne Dyer, and I'm going to be on the morning uh, uh, show. I'm going to be on breakfast TV, and could I leave 25 books with you? Yeah, yeah, sure, because we've been getting calls for this book already, because he was doing his own marketing. And then he would go on the show, and pretty soon, people that listened to the show wanted the books. But he put 45,000 miles on his car that one year, traveling and doing this. And he would locate a vicinity, he would locate a city, do is, have you heard about this great book? I want to get a copy and, and go on the radio or the um, television show. Well, it so happens as he's doing all this, and he's just, he's quit his job. He says, no, we're in. He and his wife are like, we're going to do this. We're in. All of a sudden, uh, one of Johnny Carson's um, booking agents for his show, someone slips one of Wayne Dyer's books into his bag as he's getting on an airplane. And he picks it up as he's on the airplane and reads a good portion of the book. He goes, we've got to get this guy on the, t- on the Tonight Show. So the, this fellow calls Wayne Dyer and says, Are you, would you be willing to fly to Los Angeles to be on the Tonight Show? Then Wayne Dyer in the interview I heard joking with him. He says, of course not. I've got to put my, uh, my uh, storm windows on this weekend. I can't possibly do that. So he flies out to Los Angeles and he films this thing, and Shecky Green, I don't know if you remember the old comedian, Shecky Green was the guest host, Johnny was not there, and he filmed this segment, and it was wonderful, and he talked about the book, he talked about what's happening, you know, one of the first guys that stepped through that threshold of the human potential movement, and talking about consciousness, and talking about attitude, you know, change your thinking, change your life. So the segment went really great, well, the night it was supposed to be broadcast, which is usually with the Tonight Show the next night, the Democratic National Convention was taking place, and Bob Dole was given 45 minutes to speak. As you recall, he was the candidate for the Republicans that year. He went two hours, so the show got preempted. So here he is. He's all excited. He's home waiting for the show to come on. Nothing. Bob Dole, on and on and on. So they put the, the show in the can to use it later. Didn't put it, throw it away. So in the meantime, this, this, this booking agent for Johnny says, man, we had this wonderful guest. The guy was incredible. This Wayne Dyer wrote this book, The Erosionist Zones, and Johnny said, well, let's get him back. Let's get him back. So they flew Wayne Dyer. This time they fly him first class. They put him up in a great hotel, and he does a segment with Johnny. He's got about seven or eight minutes, and Johnny said, this, this is such a great topic. He said, we've got to spend more time on this. He said, could you stay over till Friday? I think I can. The storm windows can wait. 
So he waits till Friday, he goes back on the show. So in, ten, in a 10-day period, he was on The Tonight Show three times. But it all started with him buying his own books. And he said that year, he made more money that year than he had ever made in his life times 10. And he said, I didn't do it for the money. My intention was never to do it for the money. Because, but he said, what I wanted to do was to, to help inspire people and to help bring insight and awareness to things, the possibilities that I saw through my high school counseling and working at the university and all the, the study that he'd done and development he'd done. But I mean, isn't that a wonderful, wonderful example of someone connecting with that deeper part of themselves and saying, there's something for me to express here. There's something that wants to be said. And sticking to his vision. So they asked him in the interview, he said, what are the three most important things that, for you? And he said, well, number one, you become what you think about. So important. What do we dwell upon? What do we dwell upon? Do you nurture your soul? Do you, do you have an environment in your life where there's a soulfulness? When Laura and I saw Thomas More speak at the Omega Institute several years ago, and it was a wonderful talk. He spent the whole night talking about having meals together. The importance of getting together with friends and family and eating and what a sacred ritual that can be. I mean, isn't it interesting? One of the last things Jesus did with his friends and disciples was they had a meal. It was a meal stag. All it was was bread and wine, but it was a meal. And number two, he says, and he used this poem. He says, we sit around in a ring and suppose while the secret sits in the center and knows. We sit around in a ring and suppose while the secret sits in the center and knows. We are created, and what he was saying is we're created out of the invisible. That's truly who we are, is our, our soul. We're created out of the, the invisible, this life force that is seeking expression that can give us form, can give anything form. And number three, Joel Goldsmith. He quotes Joel Goldsmith, who was a contemporary and dear friend of Ernest Holmes. You are a parenthesis in eternity. You are a parenthesis in eternity. And so we're eternal, but in this incarnation, there's a parenthesis around it that looks like this life. The purpose of life is to give, he said. The purpose of life is to give. And he tells stories in the interview of people who were booked to see him and something would happen in their lives and say, I'm so, I'm so sorry I missed your, your talk. I missed what happened. And he would send them uh, the, the, uh, the fees back for the tickets that the person had, had paid. Not asking for it, but simply saying, here's the money you paid. And actually, here's a whole set of cassettes or CDs of the presentation. I want you to have that. He said he would always do that when people would say, I'm so, not, so disappointed. He said, whenever somebody contacted me and demanded something, it never happened. But if people would just say, I'm so sorry I missed you, it would have been great to be there. Boom, we'll send them, send them what they need. Isn't that interesting? The purpose of life, he said, is to give. I am not in the world, the world is in me. He was being interviewed by Tony Robbins. So a beautiful example of someone that held the vision and did what he had to do. He took the action because he knew there was something important for him to share. So the next picture is a picture of Panache Desai. Panache wrote a book that we, uh, Reverend Catherine talked about. I have a copy here, Dis Discovering Your Soul Signature. And he goes through 33 days. It's called The 33-Day Path to Passion, Purpose, Passion, and Joy. And Panache is a wonderful emerging author and teacher upon the planet uh, he talks, in the first seven, I give you the first seven for the week of, of the, the qualities that he um, looks at, first seven days in this book, because each day is set up with a morning, afternoon, and an evening practice to read. So before you go to bed, you fill yourself with, you give your attention to 
Some very interesting ideas about putting things down and opening yourself to a different experience. And so the first seven are, first one is fear, addressing fear. The next one is sadness. Third one, anger, guilt, shame, self-judgment, and patterns. He ends the 33 days, the last one is love. It's not all the... But to ask us to look, as Ernest Holmes said, we must look at a thing long enough till it no longer has power over us. Where is fear thriving in your experience? It's a beautiful little book, a little beautiful practice for 33 days. And so we have copies of this in the bookstore. And Panache actually has on his website coaching and videos, and you can go on there, and actually with the book, you can go through the lessons on the website for 33 days. It's really well laid out. It's brilliant. And a couple of his quotes that I think are quite beautiful as he talks about the necessity of discovering our soul. What's our soul signature? We all have a gift, a unique quality to share. The first slide says, when you are in harmony with yourself, everything unfolds with grace and ease. When we are in high relationship with the divine, everything unfolds. Number two, the next slide, every emotion is an energy, a frequency, and a blessing, loved equally and without hierarchy by the divine. Just for today, will you love this way? In other words, love it all, every emotion, Bring love to it because it transforms it. And the last quote is by Dr. Dyer, which I really find wonderful. Love is the ability and the willingness to allow those that you care for to be what they choose for themselves without any insistence that they satisfy you. That's a powerful thing, to allow people to have their own experience. How many people have tried to change something for someone that just can't quite get it? You can't. But you can hold the space for them and the grace and the, to understand and honor the divinity that's alive in them. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm really looking forward to this month. It's a wonderful information, this depth of soul. We find it in our homes. We find it in our relationships. We find it in our work. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. So blessings. Thank you so much. And so it is.